Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Christopher Sprigman, Professor of Law at NYU School of Law. We will discuss his new article, The Second Digital Disruption, Data, Algorithms, and Authorship in the 21st Century, which he co-authored with Cal Rustiella, who is at UCLA. So welcome to the podcast, Christopher. Thanks, Brian. Happy to be here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So as you know, I'm a huge admirer of your work in general, and I especially love this new article, which is like both really clever and really provocative at at the same time. But before we start talking about the substance of the article itself, I was wondering if you could spend a little time just sort of framing up your discussion of of copyright and sort of copyright policy as you're thinking about it in the context of the article so that listeners understand sort of you know how how you're thinking about the problems that that are at hand sure so the first thing to say is that i typically think of copyright and copyright policy through a consequentialist lens meaning that i think of copyright as social welfare policy it's a policy aimed at making sure that we get enough new artistic and literary works. The worry is that uh, if we allow people just to copy new works um, without limits, uh, they will copy and compete away any returns that the original writers, original painters, original sculptors, original programmers might have hoped for. And by doing so, they'll suppress the incentives of those people to engage in the production of new works in the first place. So that's the lens through which I see copyright, although there are other lenses, and we can talk a little bit about that if you want. But that consequential lens is the lens for me. And the question's always, well, that's an interesting theory. It's, it's perfectly sensible. But how does it work out in the real world? A lot of my work looks at actual creative communities trying to figure out whether this explanation really holds water or whether there's something else going on. And this latest paper has a flavor of that, although there's also something new in there. So um, I guess that's where I get off. Uh, you know, that's the first piece of what I want to say. Yeah. And that, that, that's really helpful, especially because I, I felt like in this paper, there were several places where you sort of put a pin in the idea of sort of normativity or normative values um, especially in relation to the subject matter uh, that you're discussing in the paper itself. Maybe we can return to that later in, in the conversation. Um, but, but, but I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the sort of historical disruptions that you point to in the paper, because it seems like that's really driving a lot of, of the narrative that you're you're telling right so the narrative in the paper isn't all about the pornography industry but it 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 uses the pornography industry as an example of something so the pornography industry for a long time um existed kind of underground uh 
pornography producers invested money in producing new pornography, but they they didn't rely on copyright to protect that investment. And the reason was pretty simple: they they, they their work was of uncertain legality. Um, they themselves weren't particularly popular people; not the kind of people who show up in court or show up traditionally in front of legislatures asking for favors. So copyright wasn't much of a factor, and yet there was lots and lots of pornography produced for a long time. Now, um, more recently, the the industry has begun to enjoy some more legitimacy. Um, It's been made clear in recent decades that copyright can protect pornography. Pornography has, to some extent, become more prevalent in American life and around the world. Um, And something happened technologically, which really changed the business, which is pornography was a very early user of the internet. Um, So the first period of this was subscription websites where lots of people who never would have walked into a store would have been willing to give a credit card number and get a subscription to a porn site. Um, But that really changed in about 2007 Uh, YouTube was introduced in 2005, and a couple years thereafter, a couple of what became known as PornTube sites debuted. And these are basically like YouTube sites for porn. So people upload content. Some percentage of that content is pirated. Um, It's offered for free. Uh, Lots of people would go to these free websites. They would watch whatever pornography they wanted to watch, and that was it. So the, the business of subscription websites began to decline very sharply shortly after those porn tube sites were introduced. And this, of course, reordered the whole industry. Yeah. And one of the things that really struck me about this story you tell in the paper is the sort of intersection between the sort of legal history of pornography and the technological history of pornography and the way in which people in the pornography industry seem to have been sort of innovating in this very entrepreneurial way to get their product to the marketplace as kind of a story that happened across, you know, across time, but in a really interesting way, like right now. Yeah, I think that's right. And the way in which it's gotten very interesting right now is you see a very large company emerge. This company is called MindGeek. Not a lot of people know what MindGeek is, but they, they know some of the websites that MindGeek controls, um, Pornhub being a, a very large one. But there are lots of websites that they control. MindGeek is in the business of distributing pornography, but they're also in the business of making pornography. The most interesting thing, um, well, there are really two things that interest me. One is, in the wake of this change in how the industry sells its product and increasingly doesn't sell its product, um, the business model of the industry has changed. Uh, pornography itself is m- more often now seen as the the bait um, that gets people to purchase or subscribe to something else. Something else might be cam sites where uh, pornography uh, gets pro- is performed live over the internet, and that that of course is very resistant to piracy because its immediacy is attractive to people. Um, Another new product is customs. So this is a return to a very old form, which is custom-made pornography. And there are websites that have cropped up now where you can specify what you want and someone will deliver it. Um, There are lots of types of product now that are sold 
that the clips that are consumed for free are designed to attract people to. And this, this is a real shift in the way the industry does its business. Yeah. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what you think the sort of avant-garde, almost in a way, sort of market approach of the porn industry to content and the distribution of content says about the copyright, um, sort of the copyright world or the copyright industry as as a whole because it seems like in a lot of ways pornography has always been a sort of market leader when it comes to innovation <laughs> around distribution of of product and it seems like today is sort of no no sort of exception to that rule yeah i think that's right so the pornography industry has often been an early innovator and I think they're at the leading edge of something that's happening right now that may be very uh, significant for content industries generally. So if you look at MindGeek, they've gotten you know just enormous traffic. And of course, they control a distribution platform that allows them to send data out to people watching uh, content on their site, but also allows them to collect data from those people. So those people... Um, click through programs. They make decisions about when to stop, when to start, what to skip, um, what to fast forward through. And MindGeek is collecting all that data and they're analyzing it. MindGeek is first and foremost a technology company. That's how they see themselves. So what are they using this data to do? Well, to organize pornography into genres, to to better market it to consumers, to 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 make suggestions about what people might want to watch. But most importantly to us, they're using this data to shape the production of new content. They're making decisions about what to film and how to film it based on the data um, that they collect. And they're, they're, I think it's fair to say they're ahead of any other content producing firm in the extent to which they do this. Yeah, and, and that's, that's really the element of your paper that I found most provocative and most interesting is the way in which you suggest that these pornography companies are essentially becoming primarily data processing companies rather than content producing companies. Like the content is almost secondary to the data management. And in an odd way, it's like historically we thought about copyright industries as about anticipating what people might want. And now it seems like in some ways it, they're really more zeroed in or they have the potential to be more zeroed in on just providing people what they actually do want. I think that's right. And I guess I, I think about it in terms of risk. So when you're producing creative content, there's always a risk of failure, right? So a risk that your content doesn't really appeal to anybody. And there's also, I guess I would say, a risk of success. And that is that when the content does appeal to somebody, it gets it gets pirated. So what MindGeek is doing, which Cal and I call data-driven creativity, this doesn't in itself address the risk of success. So it doesn't in itself necessarily drive down piracy rates. But it does go some way toward addressing the risk of failure. It, put, it, put my, it puts MindGeek in a position to know better what people want and you know, um, to make decisions based on that knowledge. If, 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 if this is true, then data-driven creativity drives down the risk of producing new content. 
And that means that intellectual property rules, and in particular copyright, may uh, serve a less important role in the future. So, you know, it, it may be that a lower risk environment allows you to sustain investment in the creation of new content with less legal protection, possibly. That's maybe a payoff of this paper. Yeah. So, I mean, so I, I re- this is an element of your paper that I thought was really phenomenal. And I was hoping you could spend a little bit of time talking in a little bit more detail about exactly how MindGeek accomplishes this and sort of if you have any thoughts on how what they're doing might be generalizable or some of the implications it might have for other sectors of the copyright economy. Yeah. So in terms of exactly how they do it, there, there's quite a bit that we don't know. But here's what we do know. So they collect data on choices that people make in part by running A-B tests. So they show people otherwise similar forms of content with subtle changes or you know, small changes, and they measure people's reaction. Um, and from this type of testing, they gain insight into the elements of pornographic content within particular genres that appeal to people. Um, I think pornographic content is uh, perhaps more receptive to this type of approach, at least, you know, for the moment, because it is so genreized. So there are genres of pornographic content built around certain tastes, certain sex acts, certain preferences. And what MindGeek is doing is measuring exactly the best way to express those preferences, to explore them um, in the content. So we have an example in the paper. Mm. of a particular genre of pornography, which is called Naked Man Clothed Women. And, <laughs> yeah. So, okay. So, you know, again, I mean, it's a, it's a preference. And yeah. th- this is what this business is all about, is identifying and satisfying preferences. And in that, it has a lot in common with a lot of businesses. So, uh the, 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 what MindGeek has done is through the use of its data, um, they have identified elements of this genre that make um, uh, production with this, in this genre particularly attractive. And so they give instructions to their producers to clothe um, the, the, the performers in a certain way, to, to have them act in a certain way, to have them um, engage in certain um, dialogue in a certain way. And by guiding um, their production um, based on data in this way, they hope to magnify the appeal of the product. And do you have a sense that this is effective? I mean, I assume the fact that they're doing it in the first place and that they're so successful suggests that it's effective, but it's just, it's interesting to speculate how this actually works or how well this actually works. Yeah. So there's a lot of debate about that, right? So there's, there's debate about how well current data collection and analysis predicts or identifies people's preferences. Let me just step outside of pornography for a second though, and bring this back to um, motion pictures and television. So think of Netflix, Netflix in the last 
dozen years or so has become, by some accounts, the biggest studio in Hollywood. They're producing a flood of new um, content all the time. Um, in fact, I, I read this year they'll be producing more than the other major studios combined. Now, how did they how did they get that way? They got that way, at least they say, and there's a fair amount of evidence that they're telling um, at least part of the truth. Um, they got that way by using the data that they collect from streaming to understand better what kind of program to produce, um, to understand better how to present it to people, that is, how to market it, um, how to make suggestions, um, and even how to do small things like when you look at the Netflix interface and you see the pictures that are associated with particular pieces of content, what pictures should they show you? The pictures that they show you will differ based on what they know about your streaming behavior, which relates, at least they think, to your preferences. So this is a big deal. Um, it's fundamentally changing the way Netflix has addressed creativity in this field, and it's, it's, it's worked for them spectacularly well. Yeah, so do you think that Netflix is learning some of these techniques from companies like MindGeek? Or is this just something that's sort of in the air in copyright industries? And sort of how are companies sort of thinking about sort of data predictive strategies in relation to, to put, you know, the bluntest point of content production in in the future. So I think this is very much in the air. I don't know if Netflix or Amazon or Spotify are talking to MindGeek. Uh, we haven't heard anything like that. But um, I do know that recently in, in the merger between AT&T and Time Warner, right? AT&T owns a content distribution network and Time Warner produces content, not the cable part of Time Warner, but the content production part. In that merger, which the Justice Department challenged, uh, Time Warner basically said, look, we need to link up with uh, a content a digital content distribution platform because we need to be like Netflix. We need to be like Facebook. We need to be like Amazon. We need to have a two-way communications channel through which we can get data about what our viewers want. If we don't, um, we can't have that kind of advantage that we need in the production of new content. So, you know, already in terms of legal policy, that merger was approved, and it was improved in part because the judge bought that argument. So in terms of legal policy, this is already having an effect. Yeah, so from, from the perspective of, like, traditional consequentialist copyright policy, what do you think this development, this technological development, kind of technological and social development tells us about how we ought to think about copyright policy going forward? I mean, should it inform our discussion of what copyright policy doctrine law should look like? So I guess I have an idea, but I also have some hesitancy. So let me just explain the idea first, and then I'll explain the hesitancy. So the first thing to note is that data-driven creativity of the type that MindGeek engages in, I think increasingly Netflix engages in, 
The promise of this is that it lowers the risk of producing creative content. If the risk is lowered, then one thing you might take from that is we don't need as much copyright. There, there, there are going to be fewer failures. And so we don't need to give people such durable, uh, exclusive control over the successes in order to pay for those failures and sustain uh, the enterprise going forward. That's one takeaway. I would add to that that um, data-driven creativity tends to fly in formation with certain market developments that also reduce the risk of piracy. And you see this, for example, with Netflix. Netflix is, as so many of these new streaming platforms tend to be, an all-you-can-eat subscription service. So when you subscribe to Netflix on the margin, your propensity to pirate things goes down. When you subscribe to Spotify on the margin, your tendency to pirate things, your incentive to do so goes down because you have stuff right available to you. So these types of services face a lower risk of success, a lower piracy risk to begin with. If they use data-driven creativity, they also lower the risk of failure. That is the, the tendency of, of producers just to guess completely and correctly about what people want. If this is true, then uh, we, we, we have a much less risky environment and we don't need IP rights of the same strength to motivate investment. Yeah. So, so, I mean, from, from a consequentialist standpoint, like a lot of this makes perfect sense to me, but I, I will say that the element that I find a little odd is, you know, the continued use of the word creativity in this context, because it almost seems like the wrong noun, (laughs) or the wrong adjective to describe what's taking place in a context where companies are using data to determine what customers want to consume right. and then generate the consumption products that they provide to their consumers and there there really seems to be something sort of deeply in tension with kind of other concepts of why we might value works of authorship and sort of want to promote investment in the creation of works of authorship. Yeah, absolutely. And and to some extent, this, this lands upon my hesitancy. So let me say the positive thing first and then get to the hesitancy. So the positive thing is I think what creativity means is kind of up for grabs. So for a long time, we've been operating under what in the paper we call the Promethean model of creativity, right? So the creator is kind of bringing bringing something wonderful, bringing fire to mankind and doing it basically on his or her own. Um, I'm not sure that model of creativity was ever particularly true of a lot of creative works, but in, in a world of data-driven creativity, it doesn't it looks less true. And what, what data-driven creativity looks like is what in the paper we refer we refer to as panoptian creativity. So panoptian from the panopticon, the the all-watching guardian, you know, it. this type of creativity looks a little bit like surveillance. Um, and, you know, to the extent that our moral uh, uh, commitments about protecting creativity are linked to this Promethean model, to the extent that it's displaced by this Panoptian model, the moral intuitions will tend to weaken. 
Um, so that's, that's the, that I think is maybe um, uh, to come. The hesitancy has to do with um, what do we really want? So some people have reacted to this paper saying, God, you know, like data-driven creativity sounds like a pretty bad world. It sounds like a world in which a lot of things are basically very similar. And it also sounds like a world in which our own preferences are just kind of regurgitated and fed back to us. And that, that doesn't sound like art is playing the role that art is supposed to play. Um, I, I'm not sure if that descriptively would be correct about how data-driven creativity works. So one alternative picture of how it would work is that data-driven creativity would just do a much better job of picking up on the enormous variety of tastes. And it would provide a world where lots of different preferences are reflected. So we saw a potential example of that recently in the, uh, the Netflix production of this uh, film Bird Box, there was an article in the Times saying, okay, so here's a film where there's a 50-year-old woman playing the lead, and there's this kind of diverse cast of characters, and maybe machines, the Times article gave us that, right? Netflix picked up on these preferences and acted on them. And that's interesting in an in a, in a industry, Hollywood, that hasn't always succeeded at that. Um, so maybe the, you know, I have my hesitancy, I, I, I'm not 100% sure that data-driven creativity is going to result in good cultural policy or good outputs, yeah. but I'm not sure it won't either. I think we we don't know yet. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess a cynic would would speculate or observe that perhaps um, content producers have been regurgitating things that are basically the same that people want to consume for a very long time and the data-driven, you know, techniques just make them better at it yeah so i'm not i guess i'm not that cynical and i i do think that you know hollywood studios are in the game to make money and that's perfectly fine but there are also lots of people engaged in the production of new films new music new art and culture of all types who are really driven by something internal and that that's mm. valuable um I'm just not sure that goes away. I, I don't think data-driven creativity means that human creativity stops. I think it it means if it if it flowers in the way that we think it might, I think it means that human creativity is informed by a deeper, more complete knowledge of the people we're trying to talk to. And at the end of the day, that makes creativity more dialogic. For, mm -hmm. for, for those who subscribe and are really dedicated to this kind of Promethean model where the audience really doesn't matter, it's basically just they get what the genius gives them, you might not like that. But for people who have a more social understanding of creativity, um, data-driven creativity is not necessarily scary. Yeah, no, I, 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 I can totally see that, but it... it does seem corrosive to <laughs> to to some sort of kind of ideological models of the purpose of copyright protection and sort of concepts of authorship and authorial ownership as it were um to sort of break down the relationship between the author and the audience in such a sort of producer-consumer sort of way. So, yeah, I think you're right. I think it is 
well, maybe the word I wouldn't use is corrosive, but it 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 doesn't fit well with with the a very traditional romantic or Promethean notion of creativity, where you know the the audience basically just is there to behold, and it's really the creator that does all the work, right? In 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 a data driven creativity model, you could argue that well, the audience is is contributing a lot too. They're contributing the information that allows the creativity to work. Um, you know, I again, I'm. I'm not necessarily saying that's good or bad, but I, I think it's coming. Yeah. Yeah. What, whether we like it or not, it's what people want. Yeah. And you know, it's, um, there'll always be room for creativity that isn't really driven by what people want. So before there was copyright, there was of course a patronage system and the patronage system wasn't driven by what people wanted on Moss, it was driven by what some particular person wanted. And that, of course, produced a lot of really great art. So great mm-hmm. art can thrive under different circumstances. And, you know, maybe it'll thrive under this one. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, and, and in a interesting way, you sort of describe a patronage model in the pornography industry. Do you foresee the potential for something like that sort of blossoming in other areas? I mean, it struck me that that's not at all sort of implausible in a fine art context. And in, in fact, you know, you could argue that some fine artists are already sort of doing more or less the same thing. So the patronage model, of course, never died in the fine arts context. I Years ago, I built a house in Charlottesville where where I lived when I was a professor at the University of Virginia, and I I knew a local artist whose work I really loved, and I commissioned a painting. And you know, I'm not rich, and I'm not particularly special, and I I just I I had a sense of what I wanted. It fit within a series of paintings that he had done before, um, and he did this painting, and I'm I love it. I'm 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 extremely happy with it. It may not have the you know the same meaning to someone else, but it has a lot of meaning to me. Um, so in the fine arts, I think patronage never went away. And I can see other forms of creativity turning to it if those forms of creativity become low cost enough. Um, so, for example, music um, is already very low cost. Um, I could imagine a, an expanded patronage economy in music. Yeah, no, I'm, re- I'm reminded of the Momus album uh Oh, is it Stars Forever, where he, you know, fans of his commissioned songs for for the album about themselves. It really always struck me as being this sort of unique and yet prescient version of a similar kind of relationship. Yeah, one might imagine, you know, this growing over time um, in the way that um, in the pornography industry, something called customs have grown into a major part of the industry. And that as I mentioned before, is uh, is enabled by technology um, and is very piracy resistant because it is it does reflect the preferences of a, of a particular person. Mm, mm, mm. So, so Chris, in in closing, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your collaboration with with Cal because you've written many articles and a book together, um, all of which have been fantastic. And it's sort of a unique kind of collaborative relationship that you've had. Yeah, it is. And it started 
a long, long time ago. So Cal and I have been close friends since we're six years old. We grew up in the same neighborhood and we never fell out of touch. So we've, we've, this is a person with whom I've had a very close relationship for a long time. So when we write together, it's, it's kind of funny. It's like, you know, uh, I kind of know what he's going to say. He kind of knows what I'm going to say. Um, and we've worked out over a long period of time, a a kind of cooperative and very productive relationship and, um, co-authoring with him is a ton of fun. So I I have a bunch of co-authors and I, I value them all. Um, but this is the one that, uh, I've, I've had for the longest. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah, very cool. Well, thank you so much for, for talking to me today. I really appreciate it. I, I, it's been fun, and thank you. Exciting entertainment news today is about the new motion picture, Therese and Isabel. The critics applauded, calling Therese and Isabel a sizzler from France. Makes the fox look like a milk-fed puppy. Therese and Isabel will be the most talked-about movie around. Produced and directed by Radley Metzger, it stars Essie Person of I, a Woman and Anna Gale. Persons under 18 cannot be admitted.